Welcome to the Hague Courts Dialogue Series podcast, where recent decisions of courts and tribunals in The Hague, as well as contemporary developments concerning them, are discussed in detail. My name is Carl Lewis, and I'll be your host. In this episode, Dr. Lucas Rurda, Assistant Professor at the Department of International and European Law of Utrecht University, joins us to break down the facts and the procedural background of the Kiebel v. Schell case, following the Hague District Court's recent decision to dismiss the applications of the claimants, widows of four of the Ogoni Nine. As provided for in the judgment, the claimants argue that the defendants, Shell and two of its subsidiaries, were instrumental and therefore liable for the human rights violations to which they and their deceased husbands were subjected to in Nigeria over 20 years before the proceedings. However, since much of the background and facts of the case will be addressed in detail in the episode, let's jump straight in. Welcome, Dr. Rurta. Could you begin by telling us a bit more about yourself, your research, and your interest in this case? Yeah, so, uh, well, my name is uh, Lucas Horda. I'm currently an assistant professor at Utrecht University um, at the Department of International European Law. I'm also a researcher at the Utrecht Center for Accountability and Liability Law. So, in a way that I think pretty directly leads into uh, why I'm interested in this type of cases, but I did my PhD thesis on uh, jurisdiction over transnational cases against corporations when they commit human rights violations. So basically, like, um, how and why could that case end up in usually a home state court? So, well, Shell in the Netherlands. But this case specifically, this is actually was actually my, my intro into the business human rights um, question because um, I did my master thesis on this back when I was still at the U.S. Supreme Court. And I sort of rolled into it really from the sidelines. I did something on arms trade and security issues and... I got interested into in oil uh, issues in the Niger Delta. And then, of course, that case was going on. I was like, hey, this seems like an interesting topic to write a thesis about. And so that's basically what piqued my interest in business human rights in general, court cases, specifically uh, litigation accountability. Um, and it was really interesting to see that case sort of, in that respect, come full circle that after I finished my PhD on that type of litigation, the case came back to the Netherlands and was actually decided and then, well, dismissed here in the Netherlands. So yeah, that's the full circle of me and the Kielbel case. So you've mentioned that your PhD focused on transnational cases. But for someone who's never heard of this term, transnational, and perhaps came to this podcast to listen to a discussion on matters of public international law, could you quickly explain this term? What does it mean when you're engaging in transnational litigation? How does it differ to a case that is simply a matter for public international law? Yeah, good question. So um, I think it's good to say uh, before that transnational law can also have a quite specific meaning. Um, there's a group of academics working on the transnational legal method and basically it's a very distinct concept of trans- transnational law. I'm not necessarily talking about that. I mean, I'm very interested in it. But when I say transnational, what I mean is basically the area in between domestic and international. So when we say public international law, it's mostly sort of the state versus state dimension in all its complexities. When we talk about domestic laws, really within the confines of that one domestic jurisdiction. And transnational law is basically, when I say transnational, what I mean is cases or issues that uh, transcend the boundaries between the domestic and the international. Because I think we'll we'll get to in this case is also that, of course, you can have cases that are domestic um, in nature with cross borders. But this case is much more than that. It involves treaties, it involves interest really from public international law. It 
Um, Transnet, Transnet is not just like the border between the Netherlands and Nigeria, but um, there, the US is involved somehow. There's all kinds of states of some kind of interest in this case. So you can't really classify it, I think, as purely a domestic case. And it certainly is not a public international case. It's, it's a, essentially a civil case. Um, but because it's really difficult to pin it down to any one territory or jurisdiction, I tend to refer to it as transnational litigation. And there's m- more cases. And there's, of course, there's more legal issues that you could see as transnational rather than simply domestic or international. So let us jump straight into how this case has transcended borders. This decision that we're focusing on today comes from a court in The Hague. However, the procedural history of this case takes us to Nigeria, the US. What is going on here? Yeah, I think it's good to start with just the, just the facts before we talk about procedure. So this um, case comes out of Nigeria, uh, specifically out of, of the Niger Delta. And Nigeria, as I think most people know, uh, is quite rich in oil, but that's very concentrated in the south, in the Niger Delta. And for about a century or so, um, there have been companies extracting that oil from Niger Delta. Um, and, of course, oil extraction is a very like, polluting activity in, in all kinds of ways. You can have leakages, you can have uh, spills, you can have all kinds of flaring off of, of natural gas and all. So, so the environmental impact is, is significant. And with an environmental impact also comes an impact on people's lives. So uh, farmlands, fishing grounds and all that. And what you see in the Niger Delta is that there's this ongoing conflict between the communities that live in the Niger Delta and the Nigerian federal government, where the communities basically say, look, um, you're making all this money. I mean, oil is Nigeria's main export product. You're making all this money from the oil, from the oil revenue. And we're not really seeing um, any economic benefit from it, but we do get all the downsides. And one of the reasons they don't see the benefit is because it's not Nigerian companies that extract the oil, but it's mostly Western oil companies, super majors, Chevron, Exxon, uh, and Shell, uh, working together with the Nigerian federal government. So they sort of bypass, you could say, the entire local economic infrastructure and just sort of swoop in, take the oil and get out of there and leave uh, the pollution where, where it is. That's sort of the general situation. And... Of course, next to that, there's a long history of, of inter-ethnic conflict, tribal conflict, which I don't think we have time for. But that's sort of uh, it's a very complicated situation where the boundaries between legitimate grievances, organized crime, ethnic violence, political power circles, and of course, purely like economic motivations is very those boundaries are almost non-existent. The specific facts of this case uh, take place in 1995 after the Nigerian government um, arrest and execute nine. Um, well, protest leaders from the region. They're generally known as the Ogoni Nine. Uh, so the region they're from is called Ogoni Land. And most of them are leaders of this one protest movement, except, interestingly, for the, for the person who the case was named after. He was a local, uh, local official who wasn't really affiliated with that movement, but um, he did stand up for sort of the, ri- the rights within the region. And um, back then, Nigeria was still a military dictatorship. They arrested him uh, and had a sort of sham trial and executed him. I think the, the formal charge was murder of some rival chiefs. It's not quite clear whether that actually happened or at least whether these, these people were responsible. Some also, let's say, more impartial sources argue that, well, some might have actually been, but that's very difficult to discern. What is quite clear is that the trial itself and the executions very shortly after were completely orchestrated by the regime. That's very clear. And there... Next of kin, their families, um, and most of their widows after the executions fled Nigeria. And 
then, well, some of them ended up in the US. And this is basically where the procedural history uh, starts. Because, um, of course, the logical thing would be to say it's the Nigerian government that executed them. But Nigeria, of course, has state immunity. And the officials, the head of government, the senior military leaders, have head of state immunities as representatives of the government. So you can't really sue them or prosecute them in other courts. So what they came up with was hey, but these trials and these executions were really sort of in service of that oil infrastructure. And Shell in particular was very engaged with that, uh, with those trials specifically. And there were all kinds of rumors that Shell had bribed, bought off witnesses that were influencing the prosecution, that they were, um, well, I mean, what is quite clear is that Shell did and still does work in very close cooperation with the Nigerian government. So, they pay for security, they pay for security forces, they will coordinate whenever there's any type of, of um, oil theft or protest against the, the, the oil extraction. I mean, again, those things are sometimes hard to separate. Well, so they're very ingrained with the Nigerian government now, but they were also um, very ingrained with it back then. So what they did was basically try and sue Shell and its subsidiary, its Nigerian subsidiary, in U.S. courts for complicity with those executions rather than the Nigerian government as the primary perpetrators. That's sort of the factual background. And who is it that took Shell to court in the US? The widows of uh, some of the Ogoni Nine. So principally uh, Esther Kiobel. Um, and the case is basically named after her. She was the wife of the official I was referring to. So she takes Shell to court, Shell and its, and its Nigerian subsidiary. Now, of course, if you're not really in this sort of business human rights field, there will be lots of alarm bells going off, like, hey, what the hell does that have to do in, with the U.S.? And that's sort of the second um, unique thing about this case. So the U.S. has this statute called the, the Alien Tort Statute. And what that basically um, does, or at least what it did, was allow, um, well, quote-unquote, aliens, so non-nationals, non-citizens of the U.S., to sue in tort for violations of international law. Basically, you start a tort lawsuit in an American civil court for a violation of international law. And a tort lawsuit for anyone who's never... <laughs> yeah, sorry. So basically, a civil lawsuit, non-contractual liability, if you're um, from a civil law country, would be wrongful act or something along those lines. In Dutch, it would be onrechtmatige daad. Most legal systems have something similar. So, um, sue them for damages, principally. Which is and this whole ATS thing is really it's a really strange structure. I don't know if we have time to discuss it at more length, but um, and it's quite unclear why it was ever um, adopted. It's been basically been dormant for about two hundred years. I think it's a seventeen eighty nine statute, and it wasn't basically used. It wasn't used at all until nineteen eighty. It's quite unclear why it was ever on the books. There are some suggestions that it was meant for foreign diplomats actually to sue. Um, for violations of like international diplomatic law, basically to avoid the U.S. getting dragged into all kinds of conflicts. Like, let's say you're a French diplomat and you get, um, I know, driven over by a carriage in Washington D.C. Rather than start like this big political or military conflict, we can just sue and we're done with it. That might have been um, one of the reasons to adopt the statute, but it was never used that way. And in 1980, some endeavoring human rights lawyers looking actually to prosecute initially. Um, a Paraguayan police chief was also aligned with the uh, Paraguayan dictatorship. They basically try and see whether they can sue that that guy under this ATS statute. And to their big surprise, I think to the surprise of a lot of lawyers, the court says, well, yes, actually you can. Um, Torture is a clear violation of international law. 
So yes, you can actually sue them in US courts. And that's the start of quite a wave. And it comes in a couple of, of waves of litigation against foreign nationals in the US. Initially, well, m- people affiliated with, with human rights and friendly regimes. I think there's even a case against uh, Radovan Karadzic. There's um, basically trying to get all these sort of post-Cold War uh, dictatorships and, and, and their, their practices into US courts. And from these sort of officials and officials of like um, non-recognized governments, we get to cases against corporations where victims of corporate uh, activities, harmful activities, start to use this ATS to sue the corporation for damages. Um, now, the ATS is, is also strange because there haven't actually been that much successful cases. Um, almost every case is either dismissed or settled. I think there's just one or two that result in like a final determination of damages by court, mm-hmm. um, although there's some asterisks to that as well. So to what extent the ATS was ever like a, like a real thing or whether it sort of started out as like a procedural way to start a court case and then get a settlement, that's that's still really disputed. And there's a lot of discussion in, in, in US law journals on like, was this really a thing? Um, but back when the Kiobel case started, yeah, it was definitely still a thing. But the Kiobel case is also where you could say the beginning of the end of the ATS. Um, well, the, it is the beginning of the end for the ATS because... Uh, this case, so she starts. She sues initially um, in, I think, I think it's the Southern District of DC initially, um, and they reject the claim. It goes up to the, uh, the, the 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 circuit court, and they reject her claim. One of the judges, by the way, being uh, Brett Kavanaugh, now the Supreme Court. Very interesting. And basically, what the court says: Well, you're using this international norm, right, of torture, similar execution, but is that actually a norm that applies to corporations? Can you sue corporations based on a international uh, a norm of international law that doesn't really apply to them explicitly? That's also what my thesis was about. So this is the point where I sort of come into the story like, hey, wait a minute, this is an interesting question. Uh, can you do that? Yeah, super interesting question. Yeah. The problem is the, the Supreme Court, which takes up the case, never answers it. Because mm. the, the case basically argues from that perspective. So um, Shell arguing, no, you can't because it's not, it doesn't address corporations and uh, the Kiobel and her lawyers arguing, yes, you actually can because it's the ATS that sets the cause of action, um, and international law just international law just basically gives you like the substantive um, interpretation, so to speak. And that's a long battle. And then the court says, but, but wait a minute, and and I think this is also why we're here today. What is, is this actually doing in the US? Um, specifically Samuel Alito who asked this question like what's a case like this doing in the courts of the United States and they in a very rare instance they sent the parties away to go like wait a minute we want a re-argument on this specific question should this case be in US courts what the con- what's the connection case gets, re-ar- gets re-argued this is after I write my thesis so uh, advice to all upcoming thesis students never write your thesis an ongoing case you're always going to be wrong and the court comes back and says well actually no it doesn't have anything to do with the US, the, the territorial connection is very meager. Like Esther Bell, yeah, she's a refugee here and Shell has offices here. But I mean, that's a very like minor connection compared to what Nigeria would have, what the Netherlands would have. Um, the way they go about that is actually really strange. Like the whole construction of, uh, they, they, they have this presumption against extraterritoriality, ter- which is that apply. Um, and if you look at it more technically, that's actually, that, that, is a very weird argument. 
Um, it makes no sense at all. But they do it because they can't uh, talk about it in jurisdictional terms because that's already uh, been decided basically at an, early, uh, at an early point, fork in the road, nothing. They can't discuss it explicitly. So they use this sort of roundabout way to say, actually, U.S. courts don't have jurisdiction. And just a small side note before we get to the, to the, the Netherlands, because um, I remember at the time that case came out and all kinds of Murai's lawyers were m- bemoaning the death of the, the ATS. And I mean, I was too. But then um, after some period of reflection, we're like, wait a minute, actually, I mean, whatever you think about the US Supreme Court in this case and its, its arguments rationale, it actually brings the ATS much more in line with the international law of jurisdiction, which... Again, you can agree or disagree with it, but it's not as sort of terrible as it seems to be. That only came later when they when they decided other cases that basically said, well, actually, you can't sue foreign corporations and maybe corporations not at all in the ATS. And now most lawyers consider the ATS to be sort of dead uh, as, a, as a human rights litigation instrument or superseded by the Torture Victim Protection Act or other acts. So you could say Keo Bell was the beginning of the end and last year's Nestle case was the end of the end. So that's the, the the U.S. saga of Keo Bell. So we've gone from Nigeria to D.C., um, and that's sort of where it seems to end. But that's not the end, because the case um, gets refiled in the Netherlands, which from, I found pretty ironic, because the Netherlands actually intervened in the U.S. case, where it said, look, uh, this is much more at home in the Netherlands than it is in, in the U.S. Okay, said the, uh, Hester Keo Bell, we're going to find a Dutch lawyer, and we're going to bring the case where it's actually at home. And they bring the case in the, um, well, they basically bring summons, I think, in 2019, somewhat before, 2018. Um, they, by the way, it's the same lawyer, same law firm that also did this for Nigerian farmers case, which was directly about pollution. So they were specialists in this area. Um, but it's a very different legal basis. So it's not directly international law. They basically just sue under ordinary Dutch wrongful act law. They basically said, well, the shell committed a wrongful act against our um, our clients, although they do use Nigerian law, um, Nigerian constitution, which again allows you to use human rights as a basis for your claim. Because and this is um, short side note again, when you talk about cross border civil cases, you're usually supposed to use the law of the place where the harms occurred. It's the sort of standard choice of law. Uh, rule. So they have to use Nigerian law rather than international or Dutch law. And in Nigerian law, you can use that human rights argument. Uh, court discusses it first, uh, in the first in the first sort of interlocutory ruling um, and says, yeah, actually you can. So they can sue in the Netherlands. Uh, the, the jurisdiction question is, is a lot less complicated because you have Shell's main office in headquarters in the Netherlands. You can then also sue their Nigerian subsidiary as a co-defendant, which is pretty standard Dutch uh, civil procedure, um, and well, they have a long back and forth on well, what's act- the actual evidence that Shell bribed witnesses, that they threatened people, that they sort of were in cahoots with the Nigerian government. Um, there's first an, an, a decision where the court says, uh, "Look, you just don't have the evidence for for your initial claim of everything except potential bribery. So we're going to dismiss everything except the bribery case. You're going to be allowed to review review some documents." and try and bring additional evidence. Uh, there are some witnesses that are heard, and then, uh, well, and then this last spring, the court decides, um, well, no, we just don't see enough evidence on the merits that Shell did this, and they dismissed the case. And then in, um, initially, the Esther Bell and her, her fellow widows, they, they appeal the case, but th- two months ago, decide, okay, it's been enough. 
So this case has dragged on since 1995, basically. Um, the, well, the legal dimension of it since 19, I think 1998 or 99, that's like over 20 years litigation. And we just don't have the stamina for it anymore. And we're going to stop. And it seems like quite a human reaction that if we are talking, especially of widows who are saying that their now deceased partners have been killed, you know, to go through those stories continuously for 20 years, trying in the US, coming to the Netherlands, appealing, of course, it must take its toll. It, it, it is unimaginable how horrific that must be to tell that story over and over and over again and to keep getting a response like, oh, that sounds really terrible, but no. Yeah, and what, what really interested me about talking to you about this decision is that, I mean, yes, you've, you've given a great recounting of the facts, but you've also written from a human perspective of this story. And you wrote, amongst other things, that this case illustrates, and I quote, the fundamental procedural unfairness between large corporations and victims trying to hold them to account, end quote. At the same time, if one were to read this case, and uh, for those who do not speak Dutch, the English translation is available online. It seems, at least from, let's say, a lawyer's perspective, relatively straightforward. In fact, you highlighted that this case could be read as showing a well-functioning legal system. And indeed, after reading this case, I also thought, well, I don't quite see the problems here. But how can we arrive at this conclusion? Right? On the one hand, we have this case, which seems to show a well-functioning legal system. And at the same time, we have an instance of procedural unfairness in display. How do we account for that as lawyers, as humans? And how do we come to terms with this idea that both of these things can be true? Yeah, that, that's the paradox, isn't it? Because um, specifically the Dutch case, right? So because the, the, the US case is, is quite a different story in terms of fairness and, and is it functioning normally. But the Dutch case... If you just take it in isolation and go from the beginning to the end, it's it's a re relatively speedy procedure considering the complexity. Um, there's no long protracted like procedural battle. There's the court quite quickly decides, yeah, we have jurisdiction. Um, they dismiss all like a, all sorts of preliminary objections by the defendants and pretty quickly go to the merits. And yeah, they do have the possibility to present their case in the merits. And yeah, sorry, there's just not enough evidence that happens in court law. Like that's, that's, that's just how it works. Some cases you do have the evidence, some cases you don't. Um, I'm not even gonna, gonna say um, to what extent the claimants actually had a good case because I just don't know. I haven't seen, I haven't seen everything. Um, I, I have my suspicions, but I mean, I'm, in that respect, my comments are as valuable as basically everyone else's. So never, you could, that's the part where you could say, well, yeah, this is how the legal system should function. But at the same time, um, like tort law presumes the way it's designed, it sort of presumes a fundamental, especially in civil law countries, more or less equal position between um, the two parties. And they both get their, their uh, opportunity to present their sides of the story. And then the court sort of sees, okay, what's the more sort of plausible way. Now, the first point where I'm, I'm quite critical of this case is the way that the court examines the evidence put forward by the claimants. So the evidence that the widows put forward, the, the witnesses that they put forward. And you see, especially in sort of the, 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 the final decision, how rigorous the court examines that. Now, um, I'm not arguing against rigor necessarily, because again, complicated case, uh, serious interest at stake. So of course they have to do this carefully, but it's almost like they're um, in this, this framework of criminal law rather than civil law. It's not a matter of two accounts, what, what's more plausible, what's a more convincing account. It's 
Um, do you have evidence beyond reasonable doubt that this actually happened? And I'm not so sure whether that's the appropriate standard to apply. But what, what I was getting about that quote of fundamental unfairness is, I think, transcends even that, um, is that when we, uh, the only tool that we really have to um, put cases like this, the, the Kielbel case, in legal terms is tort law, right? There's no contract, there's no sort of dedicated legal system for it, there's no sort of consumer authority. Like we can't really phrase in any other terms than non-contractual liability. But that system is fundamentally ill-equipped to deal with situations where um, the power differential between claimants and defendants is so enormous. Because again, this, this case is really about the evidence. Now, first of all, we have all more than 20 years that have, la- uh, that have passed since the facts, since the, the execution of the Agony 9 and the case starting in the Netherlands. So even if you find the witnesses that you need, because again, this is military dictatorship in Nigeria in 1995. There's not going to be like a lot of written evidence or like material evidence. You need witnesses. 20 years after, one, who's going to remember what? Two, what interest do they have? Three, how um, safe do they feel telling their story? It's already going to be quite difficult. Now, what is going to help you is everything that sort of Shell knows internally, because of course they document whatever they did. Maybe it shows that they didn't do much wrong, right? And really, especially in this podcast, I really want to keep the option open that at the end of the day, they didn't really act uh, wrongfully. I have my suspicions, but this is just like, um, that's an educated guess rather than actual evidence. So they might have actually done exactly what they said they did. I want to get that clear. But to be able to know that, you need to see what sort of communication was going on between uh, their head office, their subsidiary, and their subsidiary. I mean, this is one of their largest subsidiaries. So there's going to be extensive interference with, uh, from the head office. And we know there has been extensive interference of the head office with subsidiary. But we know there's been extensive communication. We know they've taken that quite seriously. They've said so to their shareholders, for example. So a lot of that conversation is confidential or it's internal. And... Um, so first of all, the U.S. court actually refuses to release those document, documents from the U.S. case, arguing that there's no like clear interest for the claimants to have all the documentation that outweighs the defendant's interests in confidentiality and their their position in the market and all that. And then the discovery rules in the Netherlands actually don't do not really allow you to have this extensive look into a defendant's own documentation. You really need to show, like, I need this document because it can prove this particular part of the claim. So you really need to know quite well what you're looking for. And and it comes through. I mean, it comes through in the judgment. I mean, you can really see in the judgment that it seems as if, and I, I really can't think of a better word, but one side has been interrogated, especially when it comes to witness statements from the curable side. However, the same level of, to use your words, rigor, doesn't really seem to be applied to for any documentation provided by Shell. No, it's not. And um, that's, that's, I mean, part of how Dutch uh, wrongful act law is designed. And again, and there's, there's good reasons for that. But if we, if we say literally to the US court, like, look, it's, it, can, it can also be done here. That's just, in practical terms, it's just not true. And um, like the final level of, of the unfairness, I think, is also, if you think about this temporally. So what I think I wrote in the same text is, you said, you said this is really a human issue. And of course, it's a very human response. And it is. But a corporation is not beholden to that. So in the, uh, I think also, like in the time that this case was going on, Shell had nine different CEOs. So, and these, those people come and go, and Shell can just go on litigating, litigating, litigating. They can, like, time is on their side. So the more they, um, they drag it out, 
the more they wear those uh, th- those victims down. And you can see the same thing in the four Nigerian farmers case, where I think by now three of the original litigants have died since the case was instituted. And so you really need um, some type of intervention to say, look, we need to correct this unfairness. I and mean, not this, not because like all corporations are evil, we need to punish them all, but because we need some type of like fair, balanced comparison between those positions. If we want to have that rigor, if we want to really talk about what happened, who's responsible, we think it's valuable that those accounts come to the table and that we have a like a full legal perspective of those respective accounts, even if that means that we can like like in a very substantiated way say actually the corporation didn't do uh, anything wrong, then we need to have a, a completely different look at what sort of information should corporations apply, what can we do to aid claimants, um, because this is not it. This is not uh, how we get to that full account. This is not how I get to that like full rigor. Uh, of their positions. So let's move on to that point that some progress is needed in the respect that you say. And, you know, I won't be unfair and ask you for bullet point answers on how we are meant to achieve that. But what you have highlighted in terms of this idea of the corporation as this timeless entity compared to, you know, human lives, this does bring to mind this classic imagery of a David and Goliath struggle. And of course, you rightly mentioned that it is important to highlight that what is not being staged is some argument here supporting the claim that all corporations are evil. Of course not. But we do need to pay attention here to those struggles fought by victims of human rights abuses and defenders of human rights globally against large corporations which may have either directly or indirectly played a role in the committal of such abuses. And now, thinking about the Kiobel decision in light of transnational human rights litigation, and with an eye as well to this fight against corporate impunity, what progress, from your perspective, has been made? And what more, if any, do you wish to see? So, um, what progress has been made, I think, are two two, um, particular things. The first is that this awareness of that um, victims have a right to remedy and they have this position that we have also language to talk about this, right? This is really coming from the business human rights debate from the UN guiding principles and business human rights that we talk about things like right to remedy. We talk about things like rights holders in this framework. Uh, even the fact that we talk about it in terms of rights rather than like interests, harms, like traditional, more traditional tort terms, um, I think is already, uh, is progress, of course, it's very intangible, but but that get also gives us the, the next step, and that is that we're now seeing. Um, I mean, there hasn't been a lot of procedural reform, but now you see increasingly these proposals for um, like mandatory human rights due diligence lit- uh, litigation, which com- compels corporations to look into their own operations, see what's going on there. So, at the very least, you don't have this sort of "yeah, we didn't know" type of type of well excuse, I'd say. Um, and that comes with a lot of added benefits. So it's not just the fact that corporations have to look into it and have to um, try and, and, and reduce certain risks or mitigate certain harms. It's also that they have to show them what they did and not just like how they uh, assess the risks, but also what responses they made. They have to talk, well, ideally to stakeholders, which includes communities, which includes workers, um, and have to do sort of like a lessons learned step. It's like a continuous cycle. If it functions well, by the way. I mean, a lot of these... Um, new instruments, I'd say, in a lot of respects are imperfect, but it's an ongoing process. So 
that's already a start. And, and if we talk about the information position and try and understand what is the corporation supposed to do, what is the corporation supposed to know, and the fact that not knowing itself is a problem, is a violation of these, these statutes, gives victims quite some, some um, well, legal ground to, to base their claims on. Now, how effective that, that might be really depends on how specific these obligations are, right? So if you just have your, yeah, we did our, an overview of our supply chain and we found, well, there might have been some I don't know, risk of child labor and we took uh, actions to resolve it. If that's sufficient, yeah, it's not going to help anything. Um, the more detailed it is, the better um, victims, but also external observers can sort of see, look, is this actually what you did? Can bring that to courts and then say, like, hey, they claim they did that, this. They were all suppo- supposed to do that. Is that what they did? Is that what they were supposed to do? So you have much more like a framework to um, fit your claim in. The one thing that's not happening currently, uh, with the exception, by the way, of um, the recent Dutch law that proposes this, this or Dutch proposal for human rights due diligence, is procedural aids. That's the thing we don't have. So that can range from uh, relaxed disclosure rules in certain cases. It can mean uh, particular presumptions. So if your subsidiary did, did X and Y, and that's within the ambit of due diligence, your parent corporation is uh, presumed to have control unless they can show that the subsidiary really acted independently and you have to show this and that. That can be an option, like a rebuttable presumption. Um, what, what I'm also really interested in in terms of um, if you want to sort of compensate for that temporal disparity, sanctions. So what sort of sanctions do you make available both in, in when you talk about public enforcement, but especially also private enforcement. So now, when we think of remedies, when we think of litigation, we think of money. We think of compensation in monetary terms. And that really is like the corporation ballpark. They can account for it. You can literally make like a, an extra bank account like in case of litigation. It's, transact- it's going to be transactional. And, that is, rights are, and rights are not transactional. It's the whole point of, of fundamental rights. It's not an exchange. So what do you do, what sort of uh, things do you make available for victims uh, to give them a much more powerful um, tool, or to give them this much more powerful tool against any defendant corporation, not just in procedural terms, but also, for example, if you talk about, I don't know, stealing land um, or appropriating land, whatever, you can talk about compensation in monetary terms, but the land is gone. So what if you have this obligation to return and take that much more seriously also in Western courts? Again, we tend to think this, about this in terms of money because that's how most tort cases end up. It's just like, okay, pay compensation, it's done. And then in a society where we have all kinds of institutions that guard against other uh, more serious infringements, like just the monetary compensation that then buys you something of actual actual value or something that helps you work. And basically, all ty- we have all types of other ways to process grief, to process, um, to account for, for imbalances. So money in a lot of ways can help. But that's not the case if you talk about the sort of global inequality um, issues like the Kielbo case. So you need something else. You need this sort of um, repatriation, restitution of land. Uh, But also in an ultimate case, why don't we talk about dissolving corporations? Why don't we talk about sort of an ultimate consequence of, look, you're now using this economic entity as a, a shield for basically wrongful activity. So why don't we give a potential account, a potential tool of, look, if this is going on, it keeps going on, at the end of the day, we can demand 
dissolution of the corporation. Give them something actually litigate against. And so despite growing awareness in respect of victims' right to remedy, remember the limits of international law, human rights, transnational litigation, and to our current ability to tackle this question of who is meant to take responsibility, taking into account all of the actors involved in such cases. Dr. Rurta, thank you so much for coming on and discussing this case with us. I'm sure there'll be many more conversations about this case and the issues it raises in the future. I hope so. I really hope so. Thank you very much. <laughs>